Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this Monday episode of the Compliance Guy, our coding and compliance roundtable. And I have to be honest, I'm very glad that we started when we did because we were talking about frozen bodies next to frozen foods on cruise ships and um, uh, horoscope signs and pasties and all kinds of things. So with that said, I am going to uh, welcome my distinguished panel. Paul Spencer, Scott Kraft, Terry Fletcher, Stephanie Howard, Christine Hall. Uh, very quickly, we have Scott Kraft's birthday coming up Friday this week. We had Terry Fletcher's birthday on Saturday of this past weekend. Uh, Christine Hall was in September, so they're all excited to find out that they're Libras. And as far as I'm concerned, I couldn't tell you the difference between a Libra, a crab, a cancer, and a Sagittarius. So God bless. Happy birthday to each and every single one of you. Uh, welcome to the program. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. And to each and every single one of you tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while, we're so excited to have you with us. We've got a great program and a great lineup for you today. Lots of interesting topics. I think I actually want to start with... Paul Spencer's topic, and it has to do with international travel uh, and whether or not those services will or will not be covered by your insurance plan and more specifically, Medicare. And Terry, I'm sure you'll point it out to our uh, listeners. Oh, it's Terry's topic. Excuse me. I apologize. Terry Fletcher's topic. Um, <laughs> Paul and I are going to. Uh, everyone's <laughs> so quick to remind me when I make a mistake. So, you know what? Without further ado, here's Terry Fletcher. Well, the question comes up because everybody's just coming off of, uh, or a lot of people are just coming off of insurance um, vacations and they went on cruises. And my friends say, hey, we had somebody get sick on a cruise and they have Medicare. What um, is covered? I'm like, well, here's the thing. <laughs> you know, when you start off a conversation there, you just sit there and you just, you know, something bad's going to happen. Well, we know as a rule, Medicare coverage outside the United States is extremely limited. And what they talk about, I'm just looking at some of my reference here, it says they won't pay for healthcare supplies or care you get outside the U.S. And that means anywhere other than the 50 states of the U.S., District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, Northern uh, Mariana Islands. So you've got things, you know, people traveling overseas. Um, you've got people on, like I said, on cruise ships. Well, here's the the thing where they will pay. There are exceptions, and I don't know who's policing this because this would be really hard to prove. It says there's three situations when they will pay for it. You're in the U.S. when you have a medical emergency, and the foreign hospital is closer than the nearest U.S. hospital that can treat you. So I don't know who has the measuring stick, but you need to get that out. You're traveling through Canada without unreasonable delay. What does that mean? We don't know. 
and you live in the US and a foreign hospital is closer to your home than the nearest US hospital. Well, those are things that are hard to, to really prove. So in, in, in my you know, opinion, no, it's, it's really not covered if it's outside the US. We see it a lot in chronic care management where the third party is out of country and they're administering some of that and people are trying to get paid for that when that's in, incorrect. Any, any of those companies that are you know, um, in India or you know, any, any outside country that is saying, you know, we'll, we'll manage it for you. No, don't, they, you can't get paid for any of that. But here is one thing that maybe you didn't know, and then I'll send it over to Paul because I know he has a, a story on this, is Medicare will pay. <laughs> this just cracks me up. I just don't understand the understanding here or the reasoning behind this. So let's say you're out of country. Let's say you're in Italy and you had too much red wine because it's really good out there apparently. And you had to go to the hospital. Medicare will pay for the transportation to the hospital. So the ambulance, they'll get you there. But once you're there, they don't pay for anything. <laughs> so they'll get you there, but that's it. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely crazy what they'll do as far as that. And that actually came into play. They also don't pay for any drugs out that you purchase outside of uh, the country either. So Paul, with that, I'll send it over to you. You know, you have something, some experience with that too. Well, uh, you know, my favorite uh, story of ever getting a claim paid started with a live web chat with a travel insurer in Copenhagen. Uh, you know, I, I became something of an expert of in uh, trying to get claims for people uh, who actually were traveling to this country paid by our physicians. But there are a few other things that you need to take into account when you're getting information for, or getting uh, care from a foreign uh, phys uh, physician or facility. The biggest one being uh, they may not bill with the same uh, data set that uh, we come across uh, with here in the United States. Remember that ICD-10, the clinical modification, is different for every single country on earth. Ours is large and expansive because if there wasn't an actuarial reason for it to be that large and expansive, it wouldn't be that large. Uh, but uh, it, it gets very interesting when you try to uh, either uh, pay, uh, you know, get a claim from a foreign entity for payment here, or uh, conversely, trying to send a bill with American data sets overseas in order to claim payment from uh, an insurance carrier for someone from another country. Uh, the standard in a lot of European countries, uh, you know, and we can talk a little bit about travel insurance, but the standard in European countries in a lot of uh, cases is that travel insurance is part of the rider that they have on their homeowners insurance policies in a lot of countries in Europe. So uh, sometimes they're automatically enrolled with uh, with travel insurance, but it just takes a little bit to find exactly who that insurer is and how to get them. Uh, you, you may very well end up someday having a live web chat with somebody very helpful in Copenhagen. Uh, not that I wish that upon you, uh, but uh, it's quite an adventure when you're trying to get a foreign claim paid. Uh, but just remember that the data sets are not a one-to-one -one match. Right. And when we mentioned uh, Medicare not paying for it, we also mean Medicare Advantage. They're, they're right there with it. Anything that touches the Medicare patient from a payer perspective, they're like, nope, this is U.S. money. Because again, they don't have 
um, oversight over any of the, the rules that of, of you know medical services yeah. in other countries. So yeah, I had one case where we had a South Korean national who was living in British Columbia uh, who had uh, provincial insurance coverage through British Columbia. She was visiting friends in Los Angeles and one of those sudden acceleration Toyotas that we heard so much about in the 2010s suddenly accelerated while she was crossing a street and the woman lost both her legs. And it was up to me to do some of the billing for uh, one of the plastic and cosmetic uh, wound care uh, physicians who was treating this woman. And I actually got some dollars from the provincial insurance, but uh, boy, did it take some searching in order to get there. Well, I got married um, so current in Jamaica and um, 24 years ago. And I got bit by a re brown recluse spider, which is supposed to basically <laughs> eat through your skin and take your leg off. Well, here's something that he said, <laughs> I don't know if I like this comment, but he said, the doctor <clears throat> that I saw, he said, boy, it's really glad that you have weight on you. Otherwise you wouldn't have that leg. I think he meant it as a compliment. Anyway, I was just like, okay, thanks a lot. But that I had travel insurance because back then you, the, um, the, you went everything through a travel agent. Travel agents are hard to find now, you know, unless you're doing a, a big, you know, kind of um, with a bunch of people. So um, back then, yeah, but I, it, I don't even, it wouldn't even occur to me to buy travel insurance now. But after getting a lot of these questions from my friends who took cruises, they're like, can you help? And I send them the information. They're like, yeah, we're getting bills now and nothing's covered. I said, well, I can help you get the the transportation to the place covered, but after, after that, and there's, and do you see how much it is in American dollars? Well, one of the so, uh, friends was like $8,000. So let me, let me share something with everybody. I'm going to kind of share this here because I thought this was actually kind of interesting. And um, this comes from medicare.gov, right? So these are actually kind of funny if you think about them, right? So the first one says Medicare may pay for inpatient hospital, doctor, and ambulance services you get in a foreign country in these rare cases. So they're going to tell you coverage is rare. But look at these. These are actually kind of funny. You ready? You're in the U.S. when a medical emergency occurs and the foreign hospital is closer than the nearest U.S. hospital that can treat your medical condition. Well, Aren't they building a new border wall so that you I just said you that get into that country? Okay. Anyways, here's the one about Canada. You're traveling through Canada without unreasonable delay by the most direct route between Alaska and another U.S. state when a medical emergency occurs and the Canadian hospital is closer than the nearest U.S. hospital that can treat the emergency. But this is my favorite one. You live in the U.S., and the foreign hospital is closer to your home than the nearest U.S. hospital that can treat your medical condition, regardless of whether an emergency exists. Now, here's the condition. Here's the condition. Medicare may cover medically necessary ambulance transportation to a foreign hospital only with admission for medically necessary covered inpatient hospital services. So, you know, look, there's plenty of resources out here. Um, you know, 
you have to kind of sort through the different, um, you know, uh, uh, limitations on what is and what is not reasonable and whether or not they will or will not uh, cover your services. So, all right, Paul, Terry, Scott, Stephanie, Christine, anything further on foreign related services? I had a quick question. So if they're being treated, if they fall into one of those minute little caveats there, um, how's that reimbursement going to work? If they are not participating and they're not in network, will the Medicare patient be balanced billed? Will they have a larger out of pocket or how's that going to work? So apparently what I was reading <clears throat> is that the patient is responsible for the outlay of 100% of all costs, including copays, deductibles, everything and anything that they would normally be required to pay here in the United States. And then they're provided with the claim information or the information to be able to create a claim. And then it's up to the beneficiary to file that claim with Medicare. They're local Medicare administrator contractor in order to get the re reimbursement for those services. I yeah, I think, right. So that's, Sorry. Go ahead. For, for, for someone who's on Medicare, whether they're over the age of 65 or they're disabled, wouldn't that be extraordinarily challenging? I, I know that a lot of us that are been billing for years, sometimes we are challenged with different ways of filing claims and payment structures. Wouldn't that be just, I just keep thinking of the poor little grandma out there trying to get reimbursed because she went on a celebratory cruise, you know, I made it to 90. Yay. Oh, now you have this $10,000 bill overseas. And I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's impossible to get paid on it. I mean, it, there's certain things that are maybe possible, but I found a loophole on, on the, how to kind of get it right. Leave and recognized by Medicare. And that is to ask your primary care doctor if they would bill it for you and create an account. And uh, that's the only way. I think T Taylor's comment is probably the best one. Yep. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a Medicare eligible yet, though I'm going to be a year closer on Friday. However, my lung did collapse once in Toronto, and uh, under no circumstances for even a minute did I think about trying to get it treated up there because I just felt it was going to be like a mess of cost and hassle. And so I, you know, for people who are, are unaware, you can't fly in those situations. So. I jumped on a Greyhound bus and came back to the <laughs> came back to the U.S. And fortunately, I was I was pretty close. Um, but yeah, I think suck it up until you're back into the U.S. if possible uh, is probably the the best idea. And you know, as someone who if if I have a takeaway from this discussion, as someone who's planning to go to New Zealand next month, it's to buy travel insurance. <laughs> yeah, and actually, travel insurance does work. I've had people oh, use yeah, it. Yeah. If they pay it, they actually pay what you submit and they just pay it because not everybody uses it very much. So mm. they've got a surplus. All I can think of is I really dodged a bullet when I was on the ferry between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and had two hot dogs. So uh, <laughs> I won't be doing that again. All right. So with that, the lesson and the moral of the story is don't eat hot dogs on a ferry between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. I don't know. All I like right. Taylor. Or Newfoundland. Like Excuse suck me. it up until your back. I like that one. <laughs> That's right. Suck it up until your back or carry a modium with you. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into our main topic of today, which is 
the definitional change or the language change of the modifier 25, which has been pushed out by the American Medical Association. So who wants to take this one? Stephanie, you want to start with this one? And Christine, you guys kind of tag team out of the gate on this one, and then we'll we'll come around to the panel for their uh, comments. Okay. So one thing that I'm going to bring up first is actually something specific to a letter that I was showing the group here that one of my clients received this last week. So when we have, you know, different information coming in from payers, it's important to look at where this is coming from, meaning the information you're being sent, sent, is it from documentation that they're looking at? Is it data analytics where they're looking at your billing practices and making assumptions based on billing practices? and then go from there with the information. Um, one of the things that I found concerning this last week, one of my clients received a letter from Optum and it was related to a couple of different things. It was the typical analytical letter that said that the particular provider was an outlier. And it started to state that a 25 modifier is needed with radiology. So right away, I was like, what exactly am I reading here? Because they started to reference language of bundling and all of that. And one of my main focuses when I'm auditing and working with clients is two different things. The proper use of 25 modifier per its definition, and then also medical necessity of all services that I'm auditing. And this particular letter was confusing because it was mixing those two concepts together. And my concern when I was looking at that is the client initially thought, do we have to add a 25 modifier to every E&M with radiology services? And if you dig into the NCCI edits, there is no bundling there. So the next point, and, and Terry, you had brought this up too. The next point there is really that medical necessity. You know, if you're billing an E&M service with radiology, is it necessary? Can we see why that that is being ordered in, you know, documentation? Did the patient come just for the radiological exam or what's happening? So to me, that whole thing was just very misleading that they're reaching out. I have actually seen clients who add a 25 modifier with every radiology service. And knowing what we're seeing in the industry right now with the payers attempts to cut reimbursement or, you know, like we saw some state that they were going to audit everything with a 25. I know here as a group, we were all kind of joking about that because it doesn't even seem possible from a volume perspective to audit everything. But this letter was making me think, okay, are they trying to lead practices into misusing a 25 modifier, which they're later going to attack? Uh, I know for us, we have seen some of our clients in the state of New Jersey, where when a 25 modifier is added to, I believe it's Blue Cross Blue Shield, they're cutting the reimbursement in half on some of those claims for the E&M. So in a roundabout way, yes, 25 is important. Yes, we have to pay attention. 
Further on down in this letter from Optum, they did start to reference the language of NCCI edits. They gave the um, description and the definition of modifier 25. But again, it's all a moot point when we look at radiology services that they were mentioning because they do not bundle with an E&M based on NCCI. So the focus of what they were trying to get back from an educational perspective should have been heavily on medical necessity and not necessarily on that 25. Um, one last thing, Christine, before I kick this over to you, one last thing that I know with a lot of, for example, orthopedic clients that I work with, they will often do an x-ray the same day the patient comes in with a complaint. But a lot of times if they own the MRI or the CT equipment, they're having the patient come back for that. So to me, that's my takeaway from that letter coming in from Optum is having that conversation with my client about making sure that it's clear if you're doing only an ultrasound exam of certain joints, only an MRI, CT based on what they own in the practice, then we have to make sure that it's medically necessary. Well, lately I have been diving into the anatomy of the CPT code, looking at the RVUs, the work, the practice expense RVUs, looking at the, the uh, status indicators of each one of the CPT codes, and then seeing how that evaluation and management, that part of it is built into the actual payment for each one of those services. So it's very interesting that, that the AMA slash CMS, that they put out this new guidance to us because I understand it to be pretty clear that just saying, you know, hey, um, keep taking the meds that, that you were taking for this chronic condition doesn't necessarily constitute a separate evaluation and management. I, I love the way that the AMA kind of broke down. You need to have, if it's with a procedure, it needs to be above and beyond the normal preoperative. So again, what would you normally do? You would normally pull the patient in and look at the chart and look at the labs and look at these things when you make the decision that, yes, today is a good day to do this procedure. Um, that's already included. And if we're talking preventive, preventive, you you already know when you come to the doctor's office, I have hypertension. Well, how's it doing? It's doing great. Well, then I, I always consider that to be part of the preventive, doing good, um, unless they've got to make changes to it oh gosh, you showed up today and your blood pressure is 210 over 110. You're going to stroke out in the office if I don't do something right now. That needs, we need to stop and, and really deal with that immediately. And sometimes that second procedure may not be appropriate. It might just be the ENM. So I think those are some of the things that we've got to take into consideration. And these new guidances, huge fan, huge fan of I think one of the other things too, is I think people think that certain policies work in reverse. So you brought up a good point. One of the things is that, and they give a scenario, AMA, CMS, the new guidance, it says, for example, a two-year-old is seen for a well child. Okay, let's stop there. If you're coming in for a well child, coming in for preventative, and then during that exam, because preventatives require an age appropriate history and exam, mm -hmm. you find something that, like Christine said, has to be addressed, not just a passing comment like, you know, three months ago I had ankle pain. Oh, you should see a podiatrist about that or an orthopod. That's not, a, a, you know, significant enough above and beyond according to CPT. But 
then you could build possibly two visits and with a 25 modifier on the problem oriented. But what I see a lot of times is people coming in for um, a problem oriented visit and said, while you're here, let's just do your well check. Well, if you're coming in for a problem oriented visit, today's not the day for the well check and it doesn't work in reverse. So it's a well check where you found a significant separate problem that you need to address, not a well check that since you're here anyway, let's do your, your, you know, well check. Now, can you do an annual well visit, which that's different um, in addition to a, a problem oriented visit? Yes, but that's, you know, what are you getting $14 for that? That's a little different. Um, the other thing is, and this is a big thing that people just miss with the 25 modifier, pre-planned services. If you're coming in, not just radiology like Stephanie mentioned, um, if you're coming in for an injection and that's what was scheduled, if you're coming in from a previous visit that said, come in in three months, let's go ahead and take off that mole or take off that lesion. Or if you're coming in for, um, you know, uh, I think I mentioned a joint injection, a, a specific problem, a specific procedure, then there is no EM service unless it is unrelated, completely different, and you are meeting the definition of the 25 modifier, significant separate service. And dermatology is always on the OIG watch list for, for that. Oh my gosh. They're targeted. But I think what, what a lot of providers misunderstand is that it, there is a comment that says you don't have to have a separate diagnosis. And so I think that there's a lot of focus on that one sentence. Um, but from a payer's perspective, think about that. If you have the same diagnosis for a problem and for a preventive or the same diagnosis for a problem and a procedure, then as a payer, I'm going to ask more questions. I might send out an additional documentation request because I want to understand why that diagnosis required these two separate procedures. Um, I often tell my, my clients that while it says that statement, let's forget about that for a second because you know why the patient came in. Um, I need to understand from that payer's perspective specifically why there needed to be a separate visit. What was that separately identifiable issue that we were focusing on on that day? So maybe it's an exacerbated diagnosis. Maybe it's, um, again, what is that new problem that we discovered that we've got to evaluate and manage today? And, and remember, we have a new code. You know, I, think... I know you want to say something. Remember, we're going to have a new code in 2025. That is the yeah. G2211 for the complexity add-on to ENM. May not go through, but if Congress does something, but well, they won't allow that with a 25 modifier in ENM. They said that's not going to be allowed in addition. So, I think one of the other things that folks have to take into consideration when you're thinking about the application of the modifier 25 is how does that impact whether or not a service can remain an incident to billing service? So. If a patient, right, so I think there's there's a couple of things, right? One, obviously, if something is predetermined, meaning to Terry's point, as she said before, if the patient was previously seen and it was determined at a follow-up visit, something is going to be done from a procedural or service aspect. That does not constitute having the next visit where you bill an ENM, attach a 25 modifier, and bill for whatever was predetermined at the prior visit. The second one where I'm kind of going, because incident to billing provisional services is such a nightmare. I'm preparing right now for trial in Boston 
that's coming up. And it's all centered around Incident 2 services. <clears throat> and for me, when I think about Incident 2, right, we talk about the fact that the first visit was established by a physician, an MD or a DO, who saw the patient, evaluated the patient, and created a plan of care. The Incident 2 arises when the PA or NP or ancillary staff are following the established plan of care by the physician, and there's no complications. There's nothing significantly separately identifiable that transpires during that encounter. Remember, an exacerbation to an existing condition or a change in the plan of care or a new problem presenting itself eliminates the ability to bill under Incident 2 billing provisions, which means it has to be billed under the non-physician practitioner, and that is your 15% reduction. So, you know, for me, as I'm listening to the panel talk about this, and Paul, I want to I throw it over to you for your comments, and then Scott, you know, this is a great opportunity for those practices with a bona fide compliance program, with effective policies and procedures, with a living, breathing document to take the time and sit down and look at your existing modifier 25 policy and make sure that it aligns itself with the new guidance that's being published. And then to Terry's point, when this new permanent code comes about in the end of 24, the beginning of 25, whenever it is, you've got to look at your policy again. But remember, when you're talking about modifier 25, don't just talk about it from a bundling services standpoint, from a predetermination standpoint. Also tie it and link it to your incident to services. So, you know, and, 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 and to your point, Terry, that's a very good question. Do practices actually have a policy on modifier 25 because if you don't you should truly consider it all right let me pause there and let me give it to paul because i know you had something to say and then we'll go over to scott and then we'll go around the table well one of my favorite pieces of information in all the world uh that i like to make reference to is a file within the medicare physician fee schedule that's released with every update called physician work time and Getting back to Stephanie's original point with regard to x-rays and E&M services being billed on the same date and there being no NCCI edit between the two, well, the reason for that is that uh, let's take for an example a, a chest x-ray uh, and know that as I give you this information, I'm looking at the physician work time spreadsheet with my right eye in my other screen. But when if you take just a typical two-view chest x-ray that is performed in any really site of service that a physician would bill for some type of component for it, whether it be professional or technical. There's a pre-evaluation time that's built into every CPT code. For a chest x-ray, the pre-evaluation pre time is one minute. So it becomes very hard with that valuation to make a an argument that an E&M is included with an x-ray when that patient comes into the office because you gave them uh, 60 seconds of evaluation and then gave them a two-view chest x-ray, 
it's a, it's actually rather ridiculous. So I'm hoping I just gave you a little bit of grounds for appeal on something like that if you have a problem with a commercial carrier. Excellent. All right, Scott, I know you're chomping at the bit to say something. So, so much, so much to, to think about. Um, you know, and I'll start by picking up on, on Paul's point almost from the opposite direction. I think this came up a little bit earlier where, you know, patients who have practices, who have the imaging equipment in-house, don't always get the imaging done on the same day. Uh, and sometimes practices that don't have the imaging are sending patients to the practice that does have the imaging. And there's a widespread misunderstanding of Modifier 25. And so sometimes the patient's coming in on that second visit and they're being put in front of the physician. And, and yeah, it's probably gonna take longer than a minute. But I think the question is, is it necessary to do? And one thing that, uh, you know, I spoke about Modifier 25 a little bit at a conference last week. And one of the things I always try to put a slide in on Modifier 25, going back to the Modifier 25 policy that practices should have, is to remember that Modifier 25 signals that you are departing from the norm. That's the point of the modifier. Like it's, it's implied that certain things are included in the procedure. When you use Modifier 25, you're saying that's the deviation. And you know, a lot of the things that we've talked about here are bad habits that arise from not having a modifier 25 policy that people understand. So, uh, you know, with injections, uh, was working with a group recently where there was really not a lot of physician education with respect to code specific guidelines. So they appended an EM service to every injection that they were doing within the entire practice as orthopedics, right? And so obviously that's going to create. Uh, in all likelihood, a significant compliance issue. Similar to preventive services and the conversation we had about preventive services a little bit earlier, um, I like to tell the groups I work with a preventive service is a head-to-toe physical. It's not head-to-toe except for the diabetes, which we know about, or except for the hypertension that we know about. And, you know, one of the things that I will have providers say back to me sometimes, because they'll just refill three chronic conditions that are all under good management is that's when they kind of sigh and they say, well, I guess I'll have to reschedule the person in two weeks to do the chronic conditions. And, you know, it's just bad compliance all the way through. Uh, and so, you know, I realize I've kind of touched on a few different topics there, but what ties all that together is one, having an understanding of modifier 25, not just slapping it on everything. And when we get policies about radiology, that's probably not very helpful when it also doesn't reflect modifier 25 very well. Uh, and two, make sure that there's a keen understanding of the implications of some of these things that we may say or do that are essentially like a willful divergence from the intent of the modifier. One of which is, well, I'll just bring this person back in two weeks to do this thing I could have just as easily done today. Or I'm going to have you come back in two weeks to do the chest x-ray or do the the knee x-ray, but I'm going to come in and, and do an exam and document that your arthritis is doing better when I probably didn't need to do that considering I just saw you two weeks ago. So, you know, having a policy and understanding, and, and I think it's a very good point that Terry made because I, I, I feel like misunderstanding and misuse of Modifier 25 for the volume of times we use it uh, is sort of an evergreen thing when I work with different practices. Yeah, and even you know, providers within a practice. Yeah, it, listen, you know there has been 
so much made about the modifier 25. I mean, if you think about the direction that several of the commercial pairs have gone uh, as recently as this year with having to rescind certain changes to policies that they were going to make, which was uh, Cigna was the latest one, if I'm not mistaken, right? Earlier this year where Cigna said, if you're going to build an evaluation and management service with a modifier 25, you're going to have to submit the documentation for every single service to this dedicated fax line. And you're going to have to be able to demonstrate that the service was significantly separately identifiable and above and beyond the pre-service workup of that minor procedure or service. They rescinded it. But I guess here's my question. And, and, and shame on me for not, I, I looked at the document that was sent out this morning about the uh, uh, language change to the modifier 25, but was that just from the American Medical Association or was that in conjunction with CMS? Or? It was both. It was in, they both put it out together. It was, okay. Yeah. So the reason why I'm asking is because if it was just something pushed out by the American Medical Association, because I found the language itself to be kind of vague, right? And, and, and it, I think for me, it opened the door to more questions. And, and, and that's just maybe me. But where AMA and CMS jointly push this out, I think the message to the listeners is everybody else, meaning the private commercial payers, is going to be paying attention to it. And you can bet your butt that if CMS is doing something that is a cost-saving measure and is something tied to program integrity, the SIUs are going to put it at the top of their radar and they're going to monitor these. Folks, I understand we're always looking for things to generate additional revenues for the patient visits because reimbursement has been stagnant or declining for so long. But it doesn't give us the right to circumvent the system, to try to navigate around doing things the right way. And Sean, can I interrupt I, for a second? I, go ahead, Terry, please jump in. Well, one of the things I noticed in this um, guidance, which I thought was interesting because it came from both CMS and AMA, is that they did address private payers on the second page of it. It was a two-page document. And I thought it was interesting because they talk about, and the very first thing they put on one of their bullets as far as private payers vary in their interpretation of modifier 25, again, everyone's got an interpretation, and may enforce policies such as, remember, when anybody says may, it means they're going to anyway, but they're just trying to cover their butts. Um, can I say that on this? Yeah, okay. Um, flagging claims for prepayment claim validation prior to payment. So here's the thing that I think is really interesting. Sean just mentioned this. Cigna had a big thing this past year where they were going to require all this paperwork if you use the 25 modifier. They also had it three years ago and they also stopped doing it then. And then they had it last year as well. So they've been trying to get this under the radar forever. And they keep saying, okay, we won't do it because they get so much backlash. But there are payers that are still doing this. But here's what I thought was interesting about those bullets they put on for private payer interpretation was the fact the first one flagging claims for prepayment. So it definitely absolves them from people complaining that, you know, we, we've submitted this and now you're going to expect us to do all this to, to get it paid. But they're saying, OK, well, you know what, then before we pay you, we're, we're going to actually see if it's correct. And I thought, wow. This is going to hold up claims now, not just, you know, um, getting it on the back end. 
And then they also talked about automatic reduction in payment for the second code to account for the overlap they see. And like, um, you know, um, Scott and Paul and Stephanie and all the whole panel was talking about is the fact that it's that overlap that's the problem. It's the fact that the, the patient was already scheduled for the MRI. The patient was scheduled for the x-ray or for the injection. And you're coming in basically saying, hi, are you ready for this procedure that you're scheduled for, for this lesion removal? Um, you're coming in for a no out-of-pocket to patient preventative service. And all of a sudden now, because you have to refill three prescriptions on um, chronic conditions that you already knew about, that there's no changes, that to me, again, just like Scott said, is part of the preventative, is part of what you do for that head to toe. Put a dollar on that, Harry. Yeah, so you're gonna charge preventative a is, Right, preventative is, is a $200 reimbursement. But if you want your meds refilled, now we're gonna tack on another $150. So yeah. think about it, If let's take insurance out of it. Let's just be normal people paying a bill. Such I'm a great example. And yeah. say, hey, hey doc, how am I doing? Oh, I'm doing great, $200. Can you refill my meds for me? Because everything is great. Three hundred fifty dollars. Right. What? Wait a minute. Yeah. Well, exactly. to make to make matters worse, as I said before, I mean, I have providers who who do that thing where, well, I'll just make the person come back in two weeks. Oh so it's God. like, well, it's two hundred dollars, and by the way, it's going to be another one fifty when you come back in two weeks. Oh no, Scott, I got a good so one. Let's talk I got, about that I got doctors. Me. I got doctors that saying on bilateral procedures that they're going to have them come back because they don't want to get 150% of that. Now, if it's a bilateral carpal tunnel, that's just mean to do that bilaterally. But if you're going to have them come back, that's fine. But when you're talking about certain other procedures just for money and you, and they put it in the report. That was my point of that. They put it in the report. So, Due to reimbursement, we're yeah. going to have the patient come back. <laughs> Can well, you imagine? Just, well, that, and, that, that's kind of going to be the theme of our, our, our discussion tomorrow, Terry. Oh. Oh, don't yeah. do it. Don't do it because it's dumb. Um, well, that, that's a good point. I, I hear that a lot, but, uh, that we're going to bring them back in or they'll tell the patient, your insurance doesn't pay for me to do this bilaterally today or to do these two procedures today. So you have to come back. And when the patient calls the insurance company, the insurance company says, oh, yeah, we cover those two on the same day because they do. <laughs> it's just the reimbursement change. Right. So I want I want to I want to talk about something a little bit different on this topic, right? Because I spend so much time in the courtroom and I listen to these arguments that are being made by prosecutors. I listen to how defense counsel tries to argue, you know, the positions taken by the prosecutors. In the majority of participation agreements that a provider will enter they have moral and ethic, ethical clauses. And if you are simply saying to the patient, listen, I'm going to bring you back in a week, or I'm going to bring you back in two weeks, and we're going to do this procedure, the first thing that the government will look at is whether or not you could have reasonably performed that service on the date of the encounter with the patient. And if they see that you have gaps in your schedule or that, you know, you only saw 15 patients and you were there for eight hours and, you know, you could have done more in their opinion, you know, they're going to look at this from a false claims act violation standpoint. They may even consider looking at it as a reverse false claim act violation. They could take it further 
and pushed us under 18 USC, one of the 1347s or 1349s. Conspiracy to commit fraud against the federal payer program. Folks, I understand, as I said before, we're all looking for ways to generate more revenues, but we should be more concerned about doing things ethically, making sure that our moral compass always points north, and doing things that serves the best interests of the patients first and foremost. Because I will tell you, as a patient myself who struggles with advanced heart disease, if I go to my cardiologist and my cardiologist says, hey, um, I want to schedule you for an EKG in a week. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, an EKG in a week? I'm here now. It's a 12 league. Go get the freaking machine, my friend. Um, we're having a discussion about that. So I think, you know, be, be realistic about this stuff. Be smart. But more importantly, understand what these regulations and these guidelines are. Because as I've said a hundred times, we have entered into a new era of aggressive audits and overzealous prosecutions. And prosecutors are looking for anything that they can hang their hat on to extract their pound of flesh from bad actors. All right, let me pause there. Stephanie, uh, Paul, Terry, Scott, Christine. Yeah, a point I would make about this that I think is important because I hear this said in different ways all the time. Like one of the things that you had said, Sean, a few minutes ago was about the ongoing reimbursements. And, you know, there's times where I think about like what what did a 99214 pay by Medicare in some gypsy region in 2003, which is really like the first year I started doing this work versus today. And I'm willing to bet that whatever that variance is, uh, it's not kept up even close with the rate of like inflation and cost increase. And that specifically is something that's been going on even more in the past year or two. And so I'm very empathetic uh, to what goes on in medical practices. When I go work in different medical practices, the common themes that I hear these days have to do with, you know, the amount of income coming into the practice is, is not keeping up with cost of inflation. Practice can't find staff. The amount of money that the practice wants to hire staff at. Even if they want to stay in healthcare, they can make more money working at the hospital system, but more commonly they can go, you know, work at Papa John's, they can work at Amazon, all these different things. And, you know, there are different solutions to that, but I think some of what we're seeing, you know, you can't take that piece of information and say, well, I'm going to do something that is more, in my opinion, is more fair to me, but also like violates federal law <laughs> or like violates your contract, right? And so some of these things, whether it's people being brought back in for second procedures, uh, there's a lot of groups I work with where the patient will be scheduled for surgery. The provider will have them do a quote pre-op visit that will occur like a week before the surgery and really has nothing billable in it whatsoever, like nothing I can unbundle from the surgery. You know, we still have to be cognizant of and, and follow these rules. The whatever the, the, the extra squeeze is out of some of these sort of revenue bridging things is really not worth the cost of what's going to happen if, you know, your, your Mac or Iraq or, or one of these pair auditors really sinks into ongoing noncompliance. No, I think that's very well said. All right, Stephanie, 
what do you have for us on this here? All right. So I know we all know this, but I think we need to say it. Documentation matters. So I have a couple of different scenarios that I've seen lately, more recently over the summer, where we have a scenario that looks like it does support a 25 modifier and billing separately. But then after we, you know, read a detailed history, probably taken by clinical staff, we get down into the treatment plan and we only see the details of the performance of the procedure. You know, we have to remember that just because the conversations happen with the patients, just because the scenario supports it, doesn't mean the note is going to support it. And that's a huge problem. One other thing I just want to bring up here is kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum where these, um, you know, highly technical EMR systems think that they're helping providers by adding in all of that extra fluff and language. And at the end of the day, we see something, we see nothing new. So for example, um, one of the systems that honestly drives me nuts every single time I audit in it is set up in a way that's, that it's supposed to be highly automated and, and as precise as possible. And for recurring joint injections, for example, I may go into a note and it looks like, you know, a five sentence paragraph. And after you read through it, it's all about how the patient can take ibuprofen because their knee may hurt that just got injected. So (laughs) we have to make sure, and and I tend to teach this way too, we have to talk about the scenario and then we have to talk about the documentation because both have to be there in order to bill for that. And and one thing I will add to that right quick, and I'm glad you mentioned that. We as reviewers, you know, obviously providers are carrying forward documentation from encounter to encounter. And and in some instances, you know, you can do that. In some instances, not so good to do. But how many times have I looked at a note where I'm inclined to support an E&M service because it appears from the sake of the documentation that the provider's doing the workup, resulting in a decision to perform, say, a therapeutic injection, and they're going ahead and doing it. But if I dial back to the last visit three months ago, it's like the same thought process, same outcome. And, you know, sometimes that's just a byproduct of a cloned or a carried forward note. Other times it's the provider is essentially just documenting that exact same thing, right? Like, I I discussed multiple things and we decided to do an injection. And, you know, to me, it's like you're stepping into a bit of a compliance risk where every 12 weeks you're having the same debate resulting in the same decision and you're constantly billing an E&M service for it. And it kind of goes back to that base understanding of what Modifier 25 is and and how it's supposed to work. Like when you're, you know, I've, I've explained it to providers a million different ways. Sometimes I call it the head in the door test. When you put your head in the door, why do you think you're there today? Like, what are you planning to do? And if it's inject the knee, then you're not on a path to an E&M service, right? And so there are different ways to look at it. But uh, I think that documentation piece, both sides of it are, are important because sometimes I've seen new patients in orthopedics, seen new patients in multiple specialties where they get a procedure, but the provider has never documented the decision-making aspect of the procedure. So I don't have anything to support. I also think the All one right. thing that's that's tough with the 25, and this is just the last thing I have to say on it, is the, the biggest audit, um, I don't want to say red flag, but the, the, the codes that get audited the most are the um, established patient visits. It's because patients are usually coming back for 
a procedure, a service, a diagnostic, a test, something like that. I see it all the time in um, cardiology because patients come in and they automatically give them an EKG. If you're a new patient and you're getting an EKG, it, I guess there's an assumption made that, okay, this is the specialty that does that and you're coming in with chest pain, shortness, breath or whatever. But if you're coming back in for an established visit, if you don't have a problem that warrants that EKG, that's a diagnostic test. Why are you doing it? Well, I've even had doctors say, because I'm a cardiologist. What? You know, I, I, I see that a lot um, with the, the, what Stephanie was talking about with the x-rays. I'll see patients come in with x-rays and then doctors will be like, I need another set of the same thing. And I'm like, why? And they're like, oh, cause I don't like theirs. I like to have my own set. I can't believe the payers haven't caught up with this yet. I was just like, so they're <laughs> gonna play for duplicate x-rays and a lot do, but then I've noticed now finally, like 30 years later, they're catching up to doing that. But just be, I see so many practices that do not have a 25 modifier policy. You need to have one. Everyone needs to follow it. The doctors need to know it as well. Otherwise, it's just putting in a modifier to try to get paid for two line items that one may not be warranted. Terry, I also am struggling right now with very similar to that, um, but but they pay for it. So oh my gosh. practices yeah. do chest x-rays for hypertension, but they pay for it. Okay, but <laughs> wait a minute. I thought a chest x-ray was a picture and hypertension was a tension, like... And then they go on to say, well, there could be other things that we find there. Wouldn't that be screening then? If, again, we go down these pathways and you're doing modifier 25, you're billing because it gets paid. You're, there's just in the, the sound of that, that's wrong. It's cringeworthy. Yeah, it definitely is. So I think what I want to leave every, so I've been listening to all the comments and I think this was such a, a fantastic discussion. I think what I want to leave um, and as my parting words for our listeners today is that as much as some may not like what I'm about to say, I think this is the truth. You have to educate your providers. And if you're a provider watching the program or listening to the podcast, heed these words carefully. <clears throat> you have to document from a defensive standpoint because. Every single piece of documentation that you create for a patient encounter is open to review if the patient's covered by an insurance. That means be smart about what you put into your documentation. Don't put things in there due to, you know, don't put things in there that say due to the patient's insurance, not covering both of these on one visit, I'm going to reschedule the patient. That's just stupid. Don't do it. But the other thing that I was listening to, and, and, and I think it may have been, it was Stephanie, you were talking about information that gets populated into progress notes from a particular EMR. Well, I go back to chat GPT with the artificial intelligence where a provider could go in and type in a few words about a condition and within seconds, poof, you have a progress note. Well, that progress note may provide you with a lot of research and a lot of information that's readily available on the interwebs. What it doesn't do is it doesn't paint a picture that's specific to that patient encounter. Auditors like all of us that are on here, compliance professionals, like all of us that are on here, 
I don't really care about the clinical judgment process that a provider has to go through in order to arrive, right? I care about what does the documentation tell me about what transpired during the encounter? Does it match up to the patient's presenting problem or problems? Does the treatment plan, does the treatment plan convey a clear and concise message as to why the patient was seen and what we're going to do for them on a go forward? And does the documentation all fit together in that puzzle piece to make it a well-rounded visit from a documentational standpoint? Folks, these AI generating systems, these vendors that are coming to you and saying this is the next phase and next evolution of clinical documentation and we're going to put a probe in your doctor's head so that it will automatically tell us what they're thinking at all times and it will translate to pay. Folks, stay away from that stuff. I'm joking about the probe. I mean, that could be coming. Who knows? But at the end of the day, I'm telling you, as somebody in, in the last five years, I have been involved in more than 40 federal, civil, and criminal cases. Now, I'm not even talking about the administrative law judge hearings that I've done that are in the hundreds. I'm not talking about the peer reviews. I'm not talking about the composite medical board hearings. I'm just talking about the 40 plus federal, civil, and criminal cases that I've been involved with. Documentation matters. And I forget who said it, but that's probably what the title of this segment's going to be. Documentation matters. All right. Let me quickly go around the horn in the last four minutes that we have. Let me start with Stephanie Allard. Okay. I don't have much to add to that. Just um, probably from the internal perspective, take a look at what it is your providers are doing. You know, as we talk through these different things, yes, we're coming from the standpoint of an auditor, an educator, a consultant, but you know, just listening in on conversations, even if you don't have that in-depth training, you can be looking into documentation. You can still be having these conversations internally in your practices. Excellent. Scott Kraft. Um, I would just say that life is not fair. And the reason I said it that way is I have a lot of conversations with the groups that I work with around some of the billing decisions that are made. Uh, and I'll often hear things like, well, I have to do it this way because they've cut my fees or I have to do it this way because it's not fair that, you know, they've cut me in this other aspect. And so tactically, I have to do these things in order to make the reimbursement to a level that I believe is fair. Uh, and, and I don't think that's a great recipe for success. Uh, you know, whatever we feel about compliance and the regulations and you know, I say often to the groups I work with that I will say probably one or two things that sound irrational over the course of my time with you, but these are these are the policies that we have. And, and so I think it's important to, to follow them uh, and it's important to have clean policies with a common understanding of appropriate usage of things like Modifier 25 and making sure you're billing the payer for the work that you're doing. If the patient's responsible for something that they're being billed for that as well. Excellent. All right, Christine Hall. Just remember that uh, denials, appeals, counsel, consultants cost money. 
and while you're trying to get reimbursed for the services that you are performing, when we start to add modifier 25 or we start to bill for things that are questionable from a payer's perspective, that's going to cost you one way or another, whether it is from that denial management perspective, you have your cost of your staff having to submit appeals and things of that nature. So um, again, be smart about it. Paul Spencer. To the physicians out there, remember that compliance is a team activity. There's not one person in the organization that's going to be in charge of all aspects of it. Everybody needs to take ownership. And this is a very good example of it. It's not just a billing function. It is not just a documentation function. It, you know, all of these things that we've talked about today, particularly as it applies, uh, you know, to uh, the modifier 25, uh, you know, it, there, there are so many things that need to be taken into account. And, uh, you know, understanding that clinicians aren't billers and billers are not clinicians meet somewhere in the middle. All right. And my friend, Terry Fletcher, who Last but not will least. be joining me tomorrow <laughs> on our hashtag Terry yeah. Tuesday. So the only thing I'm going to say is that if you're, if you're bringing this to the physician's attention, to the administrator's attention, to somebody who makes a decision's attention, make sure you also give them examples of when it's appropriate to use a 25 modifier and then when it's not. If you just start telling people you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, they're going to shut down. You have to give a positive with a negative. Unfortunately, you do. Um, and that's just the way to approach it. So say, well, here's a scenario when you can do it. Here's when you can't. And we need to come together and make a policy that um, everyone understands. Not that appeases everyone. Don't get that mixed up. That everyone understands so that we're all compliant. All right. Excellent, excellent advice and guidance. I think this was a wonderful discussion. Thank you to everybody who's tuned in, logged on, and hung out with us. Thank you to this incredible panel of subject matter experts. Terry and I will be back tomorrow for our hashtag Terry Tuesday, and then I'm going to be gone for the rest of the week. I'll be out in Chicago at the Ascent Conference for the uh, ENT administrators uh, talking about the prosecutor's playbook and uh, Medicare appeals. And then I'll be in Las Vegas at the American Medical Billing Association, AMBA, with my very good friends, Robert Lyles, Ron Chapman II, um, Eric Rubenstein, and a host of others. So if you're going to be at one of those conferences, please seek me out, seek one of us out, say hello, spend some time with us. But until our next rendezvous with this great panel and my, my very good friends, remember to be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.